You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 11, let's look there to start. Uh, just to give you uh, just a reminder about the, the background of where we're at. We were in Revelation chapter 10 last week. Um, that passage dealt specifically with the uh, angelic supernatural visitor that John sees coming down from heaven. It's this tremendous imposing figure that's standing both on the sea and the land, uh, brings instructions to John about his responsibility to continue prophesying to the peoples, the nations, and the languages. And uh, he ends up taking that scroll and eating of it. And he uh, experiences sweetness in his mouth and then hun- uh, the sweetness like honey in his mouth and then bitterness in his belly. We talked about um, the aspects of him uh, eating that scroll being a picture of how we ingest God's word, that it's uh, um, an allusion to the Old Testament and some of the passages there <clears throat> where we're talking about feasting upon the word and <clears throat> even the Old Testament prophets doing something similar in a symbolic form. And so our summary sentence last week was that we have a responsibility to find satisfaction <clears throat> in the authoritative, mysterious, and certain word of God by striving to assimilate it into our lives and into the lives of others. Basically, we want to find great comfort and encouragement in God's word that um, there's an authoritative aspect of God's word. We see the authority of God's word extending across the earth in the imposing figure that comes down from heaven. The, the picture there is that God's authority extends both to land and sea over all creation. But there's a mysterious aspect to God's uh, plans as well because we hear these uh, thunders that respond um, and John's told not to write what they say, that there's a a mysterious element to this passage and that God withholds aspects of his future plan from us. Um, and so we're to, we're to find satisfaction in the fact that God is mysterious and that we don't have all the details of his plans, which again has to give us caution as we work through Revelation trying to <coughs> fully understand what's happening and when it happens and uh, and all that, that we have to remember that we're not given all the details and we're very specifically told in chapter 10 that we're not. And then number three, being grounded in God's certainty that there is coming a day where there will be no more delay, according to verse 6 of chapter 10. And that there's coming a day when that final trumpet will sound, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And we talked about that mystery of the gospel, the, the mystery of the gospel being veiled at times in the Old Testament, and there being clarification and further revelation throughout the end of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, as we begin to get a picture of Jesus uh, the idea of the Jews and the Gentiles being united as one family. All that comes to um, a final fruition there when Jesus comes back. And we sit, we kind of fast forwarded into chapter 11 where we see when that seventh trumpet sounds, Jesus reigns, right? The, the world rulers are no longer more and Jesus rules and reigns and his kingdom comes. And so we look forward to that day. In the meantime, we want to continue to ingest God's word into our life, feast upon it so that we can share it with others. The challenge that I left you with last week, um, is the Bible a mystery because of lack of study or lack of revelation, right? We're saying that there's some aspects that God doesn't tell us, but there's a whole lot that God does tell us about his word, right? And I told you last week, I don't want to get to heaven and learn things and find out things about God that I should have known here on this earth, Right? I expect fully to get to heaven and find out <coughs> all kinds of things about God that he didn't tell us, mysterious things about God that we were incapable of understanding. 
but I want to de- I want to be do my due diligence. I want to know the revelation of God through his word that he has given to us so that I'm not surprised when I get to heaven about things that I should have already known. All right, so that's kind of where we left it off last week, and that moves us into uh, chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Our summary sentence for this morning, and that should say Revelation 11, not Revelation 1. Um, our summary sentence for this morning, and again, we're going to really try to focus on the things that are clear, a lot of mystery, a lot of lack of clarity in this chapter, um, but what I do think is clear is that our mission is to proclaim a message of repentance and to accept delayed vindication, realizing that his glory is more important than our immediate safety. Our mission as the church, as individual Christians, it's to proclaim a message of repentance and to accept delayed vindication, realizing that his glory is more important than our immediate safety. For our kids, we are called to live our lives for God's glory, even if it results in our danger. Our mission to proclaim a message of repentance, to accept delayed vindication, because that's certainly what we see here in this chapter. Uh, Irregardless of who the, the, the witnesses are, What we do find is that God's message continues to go forth leading up to the return of Jesus. There continues to be a proclamation of repentance. The world rejects that message oftentimes, leading them to respond in opposition and persecution of the church, of those who are sharing that message. And oftentimes it may not be until long after we're gone that there's vindication for our lives and what we've done. Um, That there is a, a... fruit that that comes from some of our efforts. We see that here in this chapter. We see um, a response for some of these people after these two witnesses are dead and gone and after God has brought judgment uh, through the form of this earthquake. Um, But there's vindication that's coming for us. We've talked about this. When Jesus comes back, everything comes to light. Darkness is removed. 
God judges the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. Um, God rewards those who have been faithful to him, who have been faithful to proclaim his, his gospel. And, and we see here at the end of the chapter, whether these guys are believers or not believers, what, what is clear is that God is getting glory from the situation. God is getting glory from the situation. I think that that's where the focus of this section really comes to, is that God gets glory from all of the events in this section. Um, and that's more important than our immediate safety because these two witnesses, whether that's a group of people, whether it's two individual people, they die. They are killed by the beast. It's not their safety that's the ultimate concern. It's God's glory. And we see that here in this section. For our kids, we live life for God's glory, even if it puts us in danger. All right, some introductory notes. I told you this is the hardest chapter to understand that we've looked at so far in Revelation. Um, the reason for that is because it's, it's really possible to see this, and there's a lot of good evidence to see it from both a past perspective, a future perspective, or just a spiritualized perspective, which is what we've been viewing Revelation as most of the way. So from a past perspective, um, there's, there's a lot of ways to see this chapter being fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem back in AD 70. And so when, when Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans, you're talking about the fall of the temple. Um, you're talking about the, the trampling of the courts and the holy city. Um, so a lot of this could possibly find fulfillment in past events, um, which doesn't mean that that's the only way that it's fulfilled. There's a lot of things in Scripture that have been fulfilled once and, and kind of come back around and find their fulfillment again. And so we don't have to, you know, uh, steer clear of seeing some fulfillment of this back in AD 70. Um, there's also people that really believe strongly in the future fulfillment of this, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and that the sacrifice system will be reintroduced in Jerusalem and uh, two witnesses will come upon the scene, possibly two Old Testament prophets or two Old Testament figures that begin to proclaim the gospel um, and it, it garners a whole lot of world, worldly attention which is more convenient, obviously, today than when John wrote through, uh, through the media and through TV and the Internet. You could possibly circulate a message like that all over the world. These two guys who are back from the dead or, or back from the past and, and are here sharing this good news, this gospel message, and, and being rejected and killed. And um, you can see that as a future fulfillment. Um, and then you can also see it as a spiritualized fulfillment that, that this is a picture of the church and the church's ongoing presence and the church's ongoing mission to proclaim the gospel leading up to the return of Jesus. So a lot of different views, a lot of different perspectives on this chapter, which makes it really hard to, uh, to really walk through and understand. I do think that this passage parallels a lot of what we see between seal six and seal seven. You'll remember with the seal judgments, we talked about that pause that takes place in seal six and seal seven. Remember we talked about the sealing of the 144,000 that took place and how God specifically marks his people and protects them. Doesn't protect them physically necessarily, but does protect them spiritually because these guys end up dying. At least some of them die in that chapter. And, and so we see the sealing, the spiritual protection, not necessarily the physical protection, but the spiritual protection of God's people. And then we see it ending with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God. And I think there's some parallels that we're going to see in this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that are very similar, and we'll highlight some of those as we get into it. The timing of the chapter does seem symbolic in nature to me, and, and we're not going to talk much about today 
the um, the timing of the um, the 42 months and the 1,260 days, which is basically the same amount of time. Uh, the three and a half years that these guys are allowed to uh, be witnesses, um, which is what 1,260 days is, and then the three and a half days that they're dead. Um, there, there's time references here that seem symbolic. Uh, and again, we're not going to talk about it much today. We may talk about it in the next couple of weeks. I haven't decided yet. And here's where I'm really wrestling is I want Sunday mornings to be a proclamation of truth, but I want it to, to generate a response from you. I want it to serve the purposes of encouragement and conviction. I want it to conform you to the image of Jesus. That's what Sunday mornings I feel like are supposed to be. It's a, it's a proclamation of God's word with the intent of conforming you to the image of Jesus. Some of this stuff is probably better relegated to like a, a college class or, or some type of separate Sunday school type deal or like a Wednesday night study because it's not necessarily serving the purpose of, of conforming to the image of Jesus. It's more head knowledge. Like, what does this mean? Where does this come from? What's the background for this? And so I want to introduce some of that as we continue through Revelation, but I want to steer clear of some of you just sitting there going, okay, but why are we even talking about that? You know, like, that's cool. Like, I feel like I know a little bit more, but I don't know that it matters that I know a little bit more about that. And so I, w- I want to be careful that what we talk about on Sunday mornings is about encouragement and conviction and the conformity to the image of Jesus, that we use this and use this time for that purpose, okay? So we're not going to talk about it a whole lot, but just to give you an idea of why this uh, is very likely symbolic in the sense, just a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus's earthly ministry, which really seems to follow these two witnesses a little bit where, where they've come on the scene and, and they're, they're proclaiming and then it results in opposition and then there's a killing of these two witnesses and kind of a celebration that ensues. And we'll actually read a passage later where Jesus talks about when he is crucified, the world will rejoice over it. He says, my followers will mourn, but the world will rejoice. Then he's dead for three days and then he comes back to life. And so if you see the flow of this chapter, I mean, You've got these two witnesses that are working for about three and a half years, which is about how long Jesus' earthly ministry was. And then you've got them being opposed and, and killed, and they're dead for three and a half days, which is really a lot like Jesus' ministry and where it, where it ends and where it goes. And so um, <clears throat> a lot of symbolism potentially there. Another example for why this is probably a symbolic aspect is that there is reference to the idea of these witnesses being able to shut up the clouds, uh, and it not being able to rain. Can anybody think of an Old Testament prophet who had that ability? Elijah had that ability. He does that with Ahab. And in James 5.17, we find out how long that drought lasted. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And so there's, there's allusions to Old Testament stories here. So how literal do we take this, this time reference stuff? Probably not too literal. Probably not too literal. And we may spend some time talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. And it, but again, I don't know that it fits on a Sunday morning. So I'm still wrestling through how much to go into this chapter. Today, going to be far more basic, far more this is the overall purpose of this chapter. Here's what we know. Here's what we need to know. Here's how this brings about encouragement and conviction and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Two things here right off the bat in Revelation. There's discussions about John measuring the temple 
And then there's also discussions about these two witnesses. So I want to give you a couple of, a couple of things about each as far as who these things might be. Um, I think in, in my studies and, and based on how we've been reading Revelation, I think the temple here is probably symbolic of the church, okay? Not a rebuilt temple. We've talked a little bit about this before. We won't talk too much about it today. But just to give you kind of a history of the temple, we know Old Testament, Israel's traveling around in the wilderness. They're, they're packing up and setting up the tabernacle, right? Like they're the original church plant where they don't have a permanent facility and they're constantly having to set up and tear down as they move around. Then they get established in Jerusalem. As they come into the promised land, they establish the temple and Solomon is given permission to build that. David wants to. God says, no, your son's gonna do it. Solomon builds this elaborate, this grand temple where God's presence will dwell. That temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587, 586 BC. Zerubbabel ends up rebuilding the temple. Again, this would go back to the time frame of Nehemiah and the return from Babylon. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. That's the temple that's destroyed in AD 70. Okay, so it's not Solomon's temple that's destroyed in AD 70. It's Zerubbabel's temple, which was kind of a, a scaled down version of Solomon's. Okay, we see in the New Testament a transition and a spiritualization of the temple. Jesus talks about the temple being himself in John chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22. Just real quick, I'll read that for you. John chapter 2, verse 19. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right. New Testament goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 to talk about the temple now being our bodies, right? The temple was understood in the Old Testament and then into the New Testament as a place where God's presence dwelt, right? This is where God physically was on the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 19, that shifts now in the New Testament. Uh, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God. In your body, we talk now more about the temple being or the body being the temple of God and where God's presence dwells. We also see the church being described as the temple of God in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God would destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Talking about the church. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22. Talking about Jesus, uh, the structure, the foundation, uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is talking about the unification of of people within the church and it being a a temple structure that's being developed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We won't read all of these, but I just want you to understand that there is scriptural support uh, for for some of the things that I'm saying here. All the things, I think, that I'm saying here. Not just some of them, but particularly the ones that are less clear in this passage. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, we see this in Revelation 3.12. You'll remember where it talks about those who, who conquer and endure being a pillar uh, in the temple of, of God. 
Revelation 13, 6. It opened its mouth, talking about the beast, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Notice that blaspheming his name and his dwelling. What dwelling? That is those who dwell in heaven. Okay, so you see a spiritualization of the temple that really begins to to unfold there in the New Testament. So I really think here in Revelation chapter 11, when John is talking about being uh, asked to measure the temple, the altar, those who worship there, it being collectively seen as the church, Um, especially, especially because Hebrews 10 talks about Jesus abolishing the sacrifice system. There's no reason to build the temple again. Um, There is a reason to build up a body that's unified of every tribe, nation, and tongue as one people of God. All right? Temple, church. Witnesses, probably also the church. Okay? Here's why I think they're probably also the church. Um, The lamp, they're they're described as lampstands. We've already seen very clear. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Lampstands are churches. That's the description given. Now, it's not given again here, but we already have a precedent that lampstands represent churches from Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. So I'm going to view this, and I'm going to share this with you as it being an um, understanding of the collective church and its witness. Uh, the question might then arise, well, why two witnesses? Why, why, why not just a witness if we're talking about singular, the church? I think it goes back to some of the Old Testament and even New Testament claims of there needing to be at least two witnesses to verify something. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, the Old Testament law, the law required there to be two to three witnesses before somebody could really put on trial and really be convicted of something. That's the same principle we use even at our school. A kid comes to me and says, so-and-so did this. If I can't find at least two other people that can verify that, I just dismiss it. I'm not going to go with your word over this kid's word. Um, We're always looking for two to three witnesses. That carries over even into the New Testament, so it's not just an Old Testament concept. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, Paul says. 1 Timothy 5, 19 talks about not bringing a charge against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. Okay, so I think the significance of the two witnesses here is we're talking about God's word, the message of the gospel being proclaimed, and there are two representative individuals here who are proclaiming that as witnesses. Um, So I think that's where the significance of the number two comes in. Um, It's been suggested by a lot of people that these are actual historical figures. Um, Moses and Elijah are probably the, the most talked about as being individuals who God actually brings back to this earth to have this ministry for three and a half years. Those that think of it in a future sense, think of this as Moses and Elijah. You say, well, where does that even come from? Like, why Moses, why Elijah? Um, One aspect would be them representing the law and the prophets. Okay, so we talk a lot about the law and the prophets proclaiming the gospel in the Old Testament, proclaiming Jesus. Moses representative of the law because God gives Moses the law. Elijah being a representation of the Old Testament prophets. But there's a couple of passages of scripture that, um, you know, like I said, if I end up being wrong about this and Moses and Elijah show back up, um, I won't be totally shocked because Deuteronomy 18, 18, God's talking to Moses and uh, says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. 
Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there's this anticipation of someone who's to come like Moses. Uh, We see this also in Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I mean, that passage right there, I mean, you could make a real strong argument that we should expect Moses and Elijah to show back up. Right, because there's promises here that these type of prophets are going to show back up before this decree of utter destruction. But I think there's some New Testament help for us that this should be seen as maybe even already fulfilled. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3 is another reason why Moses and Elijah are used, because they show up at the Mount Transfiguration. Um, so when Jesus in all his glory revealing himself to his disciples, he's got Moses and Elijah there representing the law and the prophets. But Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, ties this in with John the Baptist. And we're almost done with the stuff that you're saying. Why are we talking about this? We're almost done with that. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's, a, there's an understanding Jesus shares with these people that You've, you've been waiting for Elijah, this prophet Elijah to come. You should see that as John the Baptist. He's here. He's right now. He's proclaiming the truth that has been anticipated for a while now. Yeah, I think that's the, 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 main, the main things I wanted to share with you there. They also, and this is just kind of uh, interesting, they're contemporaries, meaning Moses and his antagonist would have been Balaam, and then Elijah's antagonist was Jezebel. Where have we heard those two names before? Back at the beginning of Revelation, when we're talking about the churches giving themselves over to false doctrines and false teachings, the doctrines of Balaam and Jezebel. So there's a connection I think John is making here. Hey, you've had false falsehood going around with Balaam and Jezebel-like people. Now let's go back, and we've got Moses and Elijah basically showing back up. And you say, well, why Moses and Elijah? Well, in the text here, the miracles, again, the miracles that are being talked about that these two witnesses can do are the types of miracles that are attributed to Moses and Elijah. The shutting up of the skies and the, and the rain, the ability to turn water into blood and to, to bring about plagues on the earth. Immediately you're thinking, well, that's got to be Moses and Elijah. All right? Um, so it's very possible, probably not likely. Um, so very unpossible that it's Moses and Elijah. But if they show up, you can at least say your pastor talked about that possibly. Sometimes it's talked about as being Joshua and Zerubbabel, not Joshua who led them into the promised land, but Joshua the high priest. We're not going to go into this, but Zechariah, specifically chapter 4, talks about the rebuilding of the temple, the, the old temple, Solomon, Zerubbabel rebuilding that. You have Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest being central figures in that effort. Um, and so sometimes they are used as possible fulfillments of this uh, coming back and being these uh, ones to testify of God. Um, in his message, um, they are talked about as being like lampstands and being like olive trees in Zechariah chapter 4. Again, you're, you're welcome to kind of go and read that and look at that and study that. I did some of that yesterday. Um, we're not going to go in that too thoroughly this morning, but just to give you an idea, that's where that comes from. Some people would even argue that this is Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two churches that we didn't have to say anything really bad about. And so if you think about it collectively as the church as a whole, specifically the churches that remain faithful and true. The two churches out of the seven are the ones that really get to serve in this capacity. 
And then sometimes people talk about it being Enoch and Elijah because those are two guys that we never really get confirmation that they died, right? Like Enoch walked with God and then he just wasn't anymore. And then Elijah gets caught up in the chariot. Maybe God's preserving their bodies and they haven't actually died and they get to come back and finish out their earthly life well into the future. Maybe, probably not likely. Um, I do think probably the support for why I would say this is a collective group of people versus two people is the parallel passage in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. This is talking about the beast bringing about persecution and war against God's people, not just individuals. It says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. Right after this passage, we see the, the trumpet being blown and what happens, the saints possess the kingdom. So it seems to be a parallel passage in Daniel 7. It's talking about the beast waging war against the people of God, not just two historical figures from the past. Okay, So that's why I'm going to say it's the church and not just two individuals. Some things that we can agree upon, though, and then we're going to jump into really what this text, I think, speaks to us today from an encouraging and convicting standpoint and helps conform us to the image of Christ. Number one, although God's people are protected spiritually, they are still vulnerable to persecution. Okay, We're going to see an aspect of God's people being protected spiritually, but we also continue to see persecution, opposition, and death for following Jesus. Number two, God's people are called to speak prophetically. Um, probably one good reason for not attributing this to two people from the Old Testament is it would potentially minimize our responsibility to speak prophetically in the end times. We are living in the end times. The Bible tells us that. How long that goes for, we don't know, but the end times were really inaugurated with Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? And so we have a responsibility to act as prophets. Again, not trying to predict the future or tell things about the future, but to take what we know about the future and speak in the present about it. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming to judge those who do not worship the lamb. That's our message to people. We have to proclaim that. We have to testify to that to those that we live with, to those that we work with, to those that we hang out with and spend time with. Number three, the world will often react with the hostility to the church's prophetic witness. That should never shock us. Again, here in Revelation, we see the world opposing the message of the church. Number four, God promises to raise his people from the dead, reversing their temporary defeat at the hands of evil powers. Man, even if we are completely sold out to the message of the gospel and it leads to our death, that's not the end of our life, right? We're reminded once again, the believer has the hope of resurrection. Jesus has defeated death. He has the keys to death in Hades, right? Jesus controls the afterlife and we see that control once again here where he raises symbolically, I think, these two witnesses back to life, collectively being the church. Number five, the witnessing church possesses tremendous power and authority to carry out its mission. Now, do I believe that we have the power to do some of these things? Man, I think if God wants to, he certainly can. I'm never going to limit God. I am going to show you why I think even the understanding of shutting up the heavens and, and breathing fire on people that don't like us and, and some of those things aren't meant to probably be taken literally. And I'll show, you, I'll show you one example of that. But, man, don't let that minimize the power that we do have because that is like what we think of when we think of earthly power. Man, we have the power to pray and bring about the kingdom of God. We've talked about that. 
God responds to the prayers of the saints. He collects them on the altars in Revelation. They come to him like a sweet aroma, and he responds to the prayers of the saints. That's that's incredible power, that we are in line, in tune with the creator of the universe, and he is revealing his will to us. We are praying for that will, and it's, it's enacting his power on this planet. We have the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel that brings about radical change in the lives of hearts of people. Obviously, in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit, taking those words and enacting change in the, in the heart of somebody. But man, God allows us to participate in that. Well, let's, don't, let's don't be discouraged that we may not be able to cause droughts if we want to. We have the power to go out this week and share a life-changing message that saves people from darkness to light for all eternity. And it's hard to, it's hard to trump that type of power, okay? These are things we can agree upon whether uh, we interpret Revelation differently or not. All right, so let's jump back into the text now. It's only 1130. Imagine if we were just talking for another 30 minutes about just background information. We're going to get into the stuff that really, I think, is what we need to proclaim on a Sunday morning now, okay? Some of you are like, man, we should keep going with the background stuff, because I just love that. Um, Revelation chapter 11. Let's start with number one here. Trust in God whose presence protects us spiritually. We have a responsibility to trust in God whose presence protects us spiritually. For kids, God always protects us spiritually. Back in Revelation 11, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leaving that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Trust in God whose presence protects us spiritually. This isn't the only time that there's talk about measuring the temple. This also happens uh, back in the book of Ezekiel. Um, There's some other background information in Zechariah chapter 2. So Ezekiel 40 through 42, Zechariah chapter 2. Actually, we can read Zechariah chapter 2. We're not going to read Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42, but you're welcome to read that on your own. But I want you to connect the, the protection of God with the act of measuring. Ezekiel is told to measure back in the Old Testament. We actually see the measuring of the temple at the end of Revelation as well when the city of Jerusalem is coming down. But in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God communicates his presence returning to the land of Israel as they come home from their, um, their banishment in Babylon. God says, I'm coming back and I'm going to be your protective presence. I am going to guard and protect you. Okay, so when we read this in Revelation, let's don't get too confused about why, why is he measuring the temple and whatnot. This really communicates to us um, an idea of spiritual protection and ownership. Okay, God's presence with us promises spiritual protection. That's the next thing in your notes. God's presence with us promises spiritual protection. We've talked about the temple of God. We read some passages in the New Testament. Temple of God is always tied to God's presence. 
Where are we at? We are worshiping there, Revelation tells us. We are worshiping before the presence of God. We are protected by him spiritually. Now, what do we mean by spiritually? Because we're going to talk in a minute what it means physically. We're protected spiritually. And, and man, we, could, we could answer that in a lot of different ways, right? But obviously God has, has protected us spiritually in that we are free from the condemnation of his wrath because of Jesus. And we are free and we are forgiven and we are justified based on the earthly righteousness of Jesus that never changes. It never changes. I never have to worry if I am still free and forgiven before God because Jesus's perfection does not change. It doesn't change. It started and it ended. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can take it away. Jesus lived a perfect life and that doesn't hang in the balance anymore. It doesn't hang in the balance anymore. He completed his earthly life. He finished it and he finished it with perfection. We're protected spiritually. We don't have to worry. We're we're set free from condemnation and wrath because of Jesus's earthly life, because of his perfection. Man, we are guarded and sealed, the Bible tells us, until the day of redemption. I don't have to worry about losing my salvation. I don't have to worry about abandoning the faith. The Bible says I'm sealed and protected. Well, why so many warnings in Scripture? The fact that the warnings are in Scripture, the Holy Spirit living inside of me helps me to respond to all the warnings about falling away from the faith to ensure that I do not. Man, the warnings are there, and they are used as a tool to make sure that I don't fall away from the faith. I'm spiritually protected. Remember, we've, we've read some of these passages where great deception comes on the earth at the end, right? Antichrist, beast, and all these false prophets, and there's all this false theology circulating, and it says, man, it would deceive, if possible, even the elect, but it's not possible. It's not possible for us to fall into that deception. We are protected spiritually. We're protected spiritually, and that's all the time. All believers, we're protected spiritually. God's presence does that for us. But number two, or I put that in the wrong place, I think. We'll come back to that. It's a great quote. Don't read it yet. Number two, God's purposes for us guarantee physical persecution. God's purposes for us guarantee physical persecution. Now, when I say the word us, I mean the church collectively. Does that mean every individual has to experience persecution? Otherwise, they're not a believer? No. No, but for us collectively as the church, God's purposes guarantee physical persecution. We're promised spiritual protection. We're guaranteed physical persecution. It says, don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Just about every commentator that I've looked at agrees that this, this um, has to do with God exposing the church to persecution. But what's, what's encouraging about this is that God limits the extent of the suffering, right? God dictates where the suffering can happen. It happens in these outer courts. Um, his power limits that suffering. He uses the time of suffering. It says that his authority controls the suffering, because in the midst of the suffering, verse three, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they're gonna prophesy for 1,260 days, the exact same time that the Gentiles are trampling the holy city. 
I'll grant authority to my two witnesses. So God's authority limits the suffering. It can only happen for 42 months, and it controls the suffering. While this is happening, I'm going to have two witnesses, or I'm going to have the collective church witnessing in the midst of the suffering, right? I'm going to empower them to do so. God uses the time of suffering. God's plan marches on. Sinful humanity will have its say, but the Lord will win the day. Even in the midst of God allowing suffering to happen, he is using that suffering for his glorious purposes. We can trust in a God whose presence protects us spiritually. We can trust in a God who, who, who protects us spiritually, but also, also allows physical persecution to come, allows physical persecution to come. But here's the aspect of God protecting us physically that I want to get into, and that's number two. We trust in a God whose presence protects us spiritually. We work for a God whose purposes protect us physically. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. We trust a God whose presence, the very fact that God is with us, guarantees spiritual protection. But we serve a God, we work for a God who has purposes in place that protect us physically. For our kids, God keeps us physically safe sometimes if it helps his plan. And that's hard to wrestle with. And that's hard to grab, uh, grasp our, our minds around the idea that sometimes it's part of God's plan not to take care of us physically, to not protect us physically. Always part of his plan to protect us spiritually. Sometimes it's part of his plan to protect us physically. Look what it says about these two witnesses. And again, see yourself as part of this if we're talking about the church collectively. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These guys are like invincible, right? Like these guys, these guys aren't necessarily Moses and Elijah. These guys are like superheroes, right? Like these guys are like straight out of the comics is what you kind of picture here. These are guys that show up. I mean, you can't stop them. You can't stop these guys from their work. It says that they can, they can blow fire if necessary. They can cause plagues to come. They can shut the skies up. They have this power that withholds them from being harmed. Verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Man, then you read, no, they're not invulnerable. Like, like they can be killed. They can be stopped. But I think the key is that cannot happen until they have finished their testimony can't happen until they have finished their testimony. Going back to that quote, Lottie Moon says, I am immortal until my work is done. I am immortal until my work is done. Jim Elliott has a similar quote as well that, that certainly ties into his life. Jim Elliott's an example of a guy who probably had encounters in his early life where Maybe they were near-death experiences. I'm sure he got sick. I'm sure he had situations where he was spared physically and allowed to continue his life. I mean, there came a morning where he woke up to share the gospel with a group of Indians, and his life ended on a beach, and he was speared to death for what he tried to say. And God didn't protect him physically anymore. 
And according to this chapter, I, I believe that Jim Elliot was, was invincible and immortal until that morning. Nothing was going to kill him prior to stepping on that beach. Nothing was going to take his life because God had purposes for a group, a tribe to come to faith in Christ. Could they have done that with Jim Elliot sharing the gospel? Yeah, absolutely. Did God choose to do it that way? No. He chose to allow these guys to die on that beach and for their wives to have to come in later and share the love of Jesus for that tribe to start being converted. But man, that's a tribe, a language, a people that began to glorify God. Jim Elliott was protected until that day on that beach and then God took him. God stopped protecting him physically. He took that hedge of protection off of him because his testimony was coming to an end. He had done enough. He had done all that God desired for him, and life was over. It's the same for these two witnesses. And again, I think seeing this as the church as a whole, it's true for us that we have tasks to do. We have things to accomplish. We have purposes and circumstances to live through. And God protects us physically up to a point, and then God allows our lives to be taken. God oversees the martyrdom of the church, right? The, the altar is full of souls crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord? Not yet, not yet, not until your number is complete. We work for a God whose purposes protect us physically. Number one, God's protection allows us to complete his purposes for our lives. We have a responsibility to proclaim truth in spite of opposition. Prophets delivered a message in the Old Testament whether they were successful or not. Man, probably the, the first things that start to come out of our mind when we talk about why we don't share the gospel with others, it's fear of failure, it's fear of rejection, it's fear of messing things up, it's fear of turning people off. Man, there's a lot of, a lot of, lot of self-centered reasons for why we don't tell people about Jesus. And it's bad theology if we really mean some of those things that we say. Because man, in the Old Testament, the prophets proclaim, think about right here, if these guys are two literal individuals, these guys are sharing the gospel and they're doing so in such a way that the people that are here it say, we hate you. We hate the things you say. You are like a torment to us. We want to kill you and start a new holiday where we give presents to each other to celebrate that you are gone. I mean, that's not like, that's not like the, the recipe for, for, hey, wait until, wait until it's a good time or, or don't mess this up or... Um, or some of the excuses that we give for why we don't share the gospel, right? Old Testament prophets share the gospel all the time and people hate them for it and people reject them for it and they don't see a whole lot of fruit come from it, but they keep pressing on and they keep sharing. These two witnesses right here die and maybe never see anybody converted. If we're talking about two literal people with three and a half years of literal ministry, there's no conversions talked about here. There's no conversions talked about here. God's protections allows us to complete his purposes for our lives. We don't have to worry about the opposition. We don't have to worry about the rejection. The very worst that somebody could do in your neighborhood, at your workplace, the very worst they could do is kill you. Man, and the hope that's attached to this passage is you come back from the dead, right? Like, like the very worst that can be done is someone sends you to the realm of death where our king holds the keys to it. Getting fired isn't as, as, as bad as being killed, right? Being made fun of isn't as worse as being killed. So the very worst that can be done is we're killed for trying to share our faith. Everything else behind that isn't near as bad as that. 
And if the worst isn't bad, then everything before that's not bad either. These guys are sharing their faith, sharing the gospel. They're rejected for it, but God is protecting them until they complete their testimony. I think we have to remember too, we have been given all authority and all power and all protection to do this. We can't be harmed. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, I just want to read it. Because when we talk about the power that's been given to us, it may not be the power that, that's described here literally, but it's a pretty special power. Jesus said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The one who has all authority on heaven and on earth is with us always in that task. We're, Paul, we're called to put his power and his word on display. Now, talks about breathing fire when people reject you. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14 probably gives us a better understanding of what is meant by that. I don't think we have any historical record of somebody breathing fire, even in some of the miraculous things done in the Old Testament. It says in Jeremiah five fourteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. And he's talking about the effectiveness of the message, right? Like he says, I'm going to make your words like fire. I'm going to make the people who are hearing them like wood so it doesn't return void, right? So it accomplishes its purposes. Jump ahead to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Some immaturity in God's disciples on display in its fullest here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So even here, like, this this is prime time for fire to be coming down and consuming people who have rejected Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus rebukes them, and just a chapter later, sends them out by twos, two by two, to go and to proclaim the gospel, not to bring down fire of judgment, to go and share the gospel, to have fire in their words as they proclaim. We're also told here that Satan's forces will hate our efforts, right? As these guys are going around proclaiming, there's an all-out effort to stop their message, Um they hate our efforts. John fifteen eighteen assures us that they hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. The encouragement is that the church can't be stopped, that even in death, the church can't be stopped. Matthew, and this, this beast comes from the realm of, of the demonic. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we're reminded, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Like we are reassured once again that the church cannot be stopped. But man, it's just crazy to read this and think about the gospel message being considered a torment to those who are hearing it. Um, To the point that these guys want to work to kill these witnesses. Um, John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And there's just something about opposition that comes towards anyone who really wants to share their faith, um, especially on a public scene. Um, Man, just think about even like the controversy right now surrounding um, the football games and people taking knees during the national anthem for, for different reasons, different purposes, different protests, and even the, the, the support that's being garnered for some of these people doing so. I mean, they got owners coming out of the, the press boxes to come and stand with some of, some of these athletes who are doing this. But just think back a few years ago when, 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 a, when an individual, a quarterback, not much unlike the one who started the, the sitting during the anthems, an individual who proclaims Jesus, a guy who wants to glorify Jesus in the form of Tim Tebow, who, who is taking a knee of prayer on the football field and is completely ridiculed, persecuted, not given a job, ridiculed in the media, told to shut up, told that the football field is not a place for his, for his thoughts or his ideas or his, um, his purposes, that, that it's a place to play football. And that's completely changed now, right? Completely changed. There's hatred towards us when we try to proclaim the message of Jesus. The world hates it, considers it a torment, wants to do everything that it can to shut it up, to stop it. We should expect that because the revelation promises that. God's protection, though, allows us to complete his purposes for our lives. Number two, God's providence ensures our circumstances will result in his glory. Not only does God protect us so we complete our purposes, but he ensures that the circumstances we go through result in his glory. I'm in the camp that believes these people get saved at the end here. I'm going to tell you why. It says they celebrate, the resurrection happens. I think that's a key point to this. I think anytime we see resurrection happening in Scripture, it always seems to generate a, a believing response, a radical change in the lives of those who see it. These people witness the resurrection the earthquake happened, 7,000 people died, the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to God. They gave glory to God. I mean, this is, this is the end goal of history. Now, I do admit that the end goal of history is going to result in everyone giving glory to God, and it not always being believing glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, everything about Jesus culminates in this passage God is highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, that's going to happen. And when Jesus comes in all of his glory, that's going to happen. Uh, whether it's willfully or not, that is where the end goal of history is going. But I think this is a sign of true conversion because you take the language here, this idea of fear and giving glory to God, and it pops up in several places in Revelation and it's attributed to believing faith. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. It talks about the living creatures giving glory. Revelation chapter 14. We're almost done. We're about to close. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Man, this, this is probably, we, we, let me just see, we may not even have to read anymore. Because this is, I mean, this is the one. 
this angel flying around, eternal gospel, proclaiming to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. We see that same language used for the type of people that are glorying in the death of these witnesses, right? Like standing over their bodies and celebrating. This message is for those people. He says with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth to see in the springs of water. That's what these people do, it says. It says they, they feared God, they were terrified, and they gave him glory. So I do think there's a, a conversion experience that takes place here. How many people? I have no idea. Um, but I do think that, again, if we're talking about the church as a whole, working itself through history, man, we're talking about conversions happening, right? The, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? So if we're talking about the witnesses dying, and we're talking about people from all time between Jesus dying and, and Jesus coming back, man, people are being converted through the death of the saints, right? Vindication is happening even in the death of the saints as people come to faith in Jesus. The world may celebrate the death of martyrs, but our God will honor their death and use it for the advancement of his kingdom and glory. That's the type of God we serve. That even when the the evil forces think they win by putting people to death, it results in conversions. It results in God's glory. John chapter 16, verse 20 is the the chapter where Jesus talks about his own death. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Talking about his own death and the world celebrating that death and the disciples' sorrow, we certainly understand their sorrow turning into joy at the resurrection. All right, application for us, two points. Has the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of believers compelled me to give my life to his glory? Has the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of believers compelled me to give my life to his glory? We see individuals here who are faithful to share the gospel even to the point of death. The only reason they're willing to do that is because they believe Jesus is back from the dead. The only reason we're compelled to do that is because we know we're promised to come back from the dead ourselves. Why would anybody else go to the stake and not recant everything they believe about Jesus unless they know Jesus has gained victory over death? Man, if, I, if I'm not sure, man, I got to back off and say, man, I love Jesus, but not that much because I don't know what happens if I die. Jesus has assured us. He assures us once again right here. Resurrection happens. It happens for those that follow him. If we believe that, it ought to compel us to give our lives in whatever ways God wants, whatever ways God has planned. He protects us physically until our testimony ends, until he is done with us and the purposes that he has given to us on this earth. Have we been compelled to give our lives for his glory at all costs? Number two, have I adopted a lifestyle that results in the torment of those rejecting Jesus and the attack of the enemy on my life. And that one's not like your typical application. But if we're talking about two witnesses and we're talking about it being the church, man, I, I, I think we ought to be a torment to some people that because not everybody we share the gospel is going to accept it. Man, if you have a 100% um, rate of conversion... I mean, that's impressive, but it also probably means you're not sharing it a whole lot, right? Like, like we ought to be rejected because the masses aren't going to always respond to our gospel presentations. And when we get rejected one time, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to stop, right? We continue to proclaim repentance like this angel flying around, fear God, give him glory, destruction is coming. 
man, I was convicted as I was studying this because I don't know that anybody's tormented by my ministry right now. I got to thinking, if I were to die today, would the enemy rejoice that I'm no longer here to carry on my ministry? Think about that question. Like, would the enemy rejoice if God gave it permission to kill you today to stop the things that you're doing? Or does the enemy not even know our name right now? Like, this beast comes out of the pit and makes war against these two witnesses to end their influence. And I'm not advocating some type of spiritual pride that, you know, am I, am I going to garner the attention of the enemy? And that's my goal now, right? The goal is God's glory. That's the, that's the end goal of this section, is that God gets the glory from these circumstances. Man, I can't help but think in reading this and studying this that, gosh, if my life falls short of being a torment to people who aren't accepting the gospel, then I'm probably not sharing it like I should. I'm not repeatedly sharing it like I should. I'm probably waiting for the right time or I'm probably uh, justifying it because I don't want to mess it up or, or I'm not sure if I'd be able to answer all their questions or, man, they might make fun of me. They might, I might get fired if I do this at my job. And those are all things that are far less than the, than the result of death. And here the picture is, do it until you die. Do it until it kills you if necessary. And God will protect you until then. God will give you another job. He's not going to let you starve to death. He's going to give you another job if you get fired, right? He's going to give you another. He's going to give you uh, people to surround you and help you if you if you cause your family to abandon you because of your your gospel beliefs. He's going to physically protect you until your testimony is done with. That's that's the encouragement that he saves you physically until it's no longer part of his plan. And I want to be so active and so engaged with the gospel that the enemy wants me dead. That there are people on this earth that want me dead because I'm so consistent with the gospel. Family worship questions. What are the fears that we have personally about sharing the gospel with others? We talked about that a little bit in our groups this morning, but let's talk about that as a family. How does the Bible speak to and eliminate those fears for us? Man, be honest with the reasons and then seek scripture out and the scriptural responses to that. We've been given all authority, all power to take this message. We've been given physical protection until our testimony is finished. A lot of things in scripture that would speak to the fears that we experience. Moses is a great example. Moses had all kinds of fears about speaking to Pharaoh. Not qualified, not capable, not very good with my words. God responds constantly and, and, and answers those concerns. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage. I know it's really confusing and there's a lot of questions left after looking at a passage like this, but God, I'm thankful for the clarity that's communicated to us. I am thankful that you are a God who always protects us spiritually. You have assured us that your presence, your temple presence is always with us. We have no fear of condemnation. We have no fear of death that you've made all kinds of spiritual promises to us. You keep those promises. God, I'm thankful that in this passage we can, we can see and understand that you protect us physically up to a point as well. We know you haven't guaranteed us to be free from persecution and suffering. In fact, you've, you've assured us that that'll probably happen a lot of times. But God, I'm thankful that your plans protect us physically as long as it's part of your plan. And God, where would we rather be than in the middle of your plan? 
And so, God, when our days come to an end on this earth, pray that we wouldn't be afraid of that day. We'd see that as the end of our testimony. That hope of resurrection would spur us on. God, I pray that this church, this, this group of individuals, but collectively as this church, God, I pray that our presence within this community would bring about uh, salvation. But God, I also pray that, that in a sense, according to this passage, that it would bring about a, a, a level of torment as well. That we would be so obedient to the gospel that we would be rejected for those that are being, that are being condemned, that we would be rejected in that message being shared and that the enemy would seek to stop the advancement of the gospel through this local church. God, if these two witnesses are truly the collective church, man, we, need, we, want, to see a, we want to see ourselves a part of that. We want to jump in there and be faithful to share the gospel, even to the point of death. So God, I pray that you'd help us to do that and convict us where we need to individually in our own efforts to be a part of that. Praise you and thank you for what you've taught us this morning. I pray that it would bring about encouragement, conviction, and conformity to the image of your son through this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.